Welcome to the Space Store podcast. You're listening to season one of the Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of season one, episode eight, Unconventional Careers from Nature Lover to Space Expert with leader of satellite applications for sustainable development at satellite applications catapult, Elena Lobo. We discuss how her career has enabled work with communities, governments, NGOs, and development organizations in order to understand the problems they face and the need to build easy to use solutions, how her PhD on the effects of climate change on tropical rainforests has helped amass a wealth of experience, and how Eleanor has supported the UKSA as the UK Executive Secretariat for the International Charter Space and Major Disasters. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of seasons 1, 2 and 3 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. How are you, Eleanor? I'm very good, thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on our Thursday night Space Store Live Talks. So do you, want to tell everyone, do you want to tell everyone what you're going to be talking about tonight? Sure. So um, you'll all have seen the title of the talk, which is Unconventional Careers from Nature Lover to Space Expert. And um, I'm going to use my own career experience to just give an example of uh, how you can definitely have a career in space at any point in your life, whether you're just starting up or actually a lot later in life. Um, and just to say that uh, if you really pursue your passion and remain open, great things can happen that you could never imagine. Definitely, yeah. And for those of us who are joining us now, Eleanor, do you want to just give them a background of what you do currently in the space industry? Uh, yes. So um, you've actually caught me at an interesting uh, point in time in my career. And um, by the way, I apologize as I'm trying to uh, share my screen <laughs> as I do this. And multitasking is a skill that I tend to pride on but doesn't always work perfectly. Uh, so hopefully we're there. Um, so actually, as it happens, I'm right now in a transition <laughs> from a career point of view. So uh, I wanted to provide a few examples actually of things that I've done that uh, make this talk meaningful for everyone. So a few of the things that I've done in space uh, involve uh, different collaborations with NASA, both uh, on the um, laser side and on the satellite side. I've supported the UK Space Agency in a fantastic international collaboration called the International Charter Space and Major Disasters, which currently brings together about 17 space agencies all over the world collaborating to help countries um, that are going through natural disasters. I've worked at a, a wonderful organization, Satellite Applications Catapult, where I actually uh, got to work with the founder of Space Store. Um, I, and I was the lead of satellite applications for sustainable development. So looking at how we can live our lives more sustainably everywhere, but especially in, in the developing world. Um, yeah. 
I recently worked at a startup uh, that is aiming to deliver video for satellites uh, for the good and the benefit of humanity. And if you're spacer aficionados, people in the audience, you may actually have seen me present live when we would, could still get together in person um, on this topic uh, last year. Awesome, I think you've had, you've, you've had such a glittering career in the space industry so far. Um, many people will be wondering, well, they'll be wondering there's so much they can learn from you um, over this next um, hour or so. So what I'm going to do is just welcome a few of our guests. Hi, Dipali. Um, thank you for joining us. And a warm welcome to everyone who's now joining us on YouTube. Once again, we've got Dr. Eleanor Loba in tonight for another incredible talk. And without further ado, I'm going to let you take it away, Eleanor. I'm going to disappear for a little bit, but please do send in your questions. Um, if you have any for Eleanor through the chat on Zoom or via the um, chat on, under the YouTube video. And then around six o'clock, um, I'll pop back on and we'll, we'll try and answer some questions with Eleanor. Perfect. So awesome. Thanks everyone for showing up today. I hope you've had a great day wherever you're based. And the beauty of doing this uh, virtual as opposed to in person is that obviously, hopefully it gives a lot more people the chance to join, even if you are a bit further away. Uh, so just for those of you who haven't caught me yet, um, or that have joined just a few minutes later, today's talk is really uh, using my own career experience to talk you through how you can at any point in your life, find yourself with an exciting career in space. And you don't need to have planned it from the start. You can really jump on it at any point. Um, and so hopefully by talking you through my journey, you can see how this happened. Um, and I've also worked with people who, you know, in their 40s and 50s decided that space was very exciting and came from completely different fields um, such as finance or banking and went into deep space technology. So this is really possible. That's one of the amazing things that our uh, beautiful changing world has on offer for us today. And so without further ado, I'm going to bring you over to the start where these things um, start for me and why do I go at, you know, I was and I am a nature lover and how did I become a space expert? So I grew up in Spain where I'm originally from in Southern Spain. And the, the three things that were really at the core and center of my life were um, big family. And you can see there on the top left, what people in Spain looked like in the uh, 80s and early 90s. So uh, kind of little flashback uh, for those who were uh, alive then and hopefully a fun, cool look into what previous generations used to look like for those of you who are younger. So a uh, big family, which meant I absolutely love being around people, interacting with people, working with people. Um, and this has had a deep um, impact in my career in the long term that I couldn't have suspected uh, you know, when I was growing up. Um, then on the right, you will see Actually, my, my closest family, so my siblings, my mom, 
and my dog and we are out in nature we're in the mountains and um i was lucky to have every summer with my family with my close family going to nature so that's the little map on the left hand side it's not customized for me but it really means that travel going places being outdoors was a big part of my growing up and something that is still very close to my heart so every time i'm outside in nature i'm in complete bliss but it also gave me a very um i i guess unconscious realization of just the geography of things, where things are, what it takes to go from one place to another. So this is a start. And for those of you who are young and maybe trying to figure out what you do with your career and your life, as you can see, nothing relating to space here yet. No clue if you ask me as a child, would you want to be working with space agencies and satellite technologies to look at uh, disasters or sustainable development? Couldn't have imagined it in a million years. Um, but that was the seed. These planted a seed for what would happen later in my life and my career. And so when it got time to go to college to study at university, I had no model for anyone working in space or in fact uh, studying things relating to space careers or even to um, location, to geography. So what I did in a very sort of systematic scientific way is I printed out the curricula of all of the degrees that I thought might interest in me, um, looked at them and decided, and then started sub-studying them by, by the ones that I thought uh, I would enjoy studying, but also I would enjoy working at. And I ended up with um, a master's of engineering in natural resource management. And so, this again, it's an other piece of the puzzle. And this is what I also want to reiterate to those of you who are still maybe early in your careers and you don't necessarily know, oh, do I want to go this direction or this other direction? So when I did this degree, I chose it because it involved working with nature, but also it involved the ability to influence, to make changes and to make a water a better world for people so already in this first career choice you can see how some of the things that i grew up with that were important values to me were already influencing the direction i was taking but i have to say that choosing an engineering degree had a strong impact in the way that i would um, progress and see my career later because the first thing the first day that they told us when we got to this degree was, you are an engineer. It is your job to solve any problem and any issue that emerges. There are no excuses, no justifications. You are responsible. You figure out the way and sort that out. And um, that was a fantastic seed for understanding. I had all the power. It was always in my hand to figure out things, to figure out and to carve out a journey that would take me where I wanted to be. And while they meant it, obviously, for engineering problems in natural resource management, that was actually a learning that would work out very valuable in life altogether. And another aspect um, that, was, that was really valuable and that came from this engineering degree is that uh, we tend to sometimes simplify systems, and that is good for us to understanding. 
um, these systems, right? So we structure them, we organize them sort of like the, the diagram that you see on the bottom left. But when you're dealing with life and with nature, things are more complex than our simplified versions. So while it's useful to create these uh, systems understanding, we have to realize that they are just a way to see life in a, in, in a way that's easier for us. But life itself is complicate, complicated, is hyper-connected. There are a lot of mechanisms at play. And keeping that in mind is always useful so that when we do something and it doesn't work out the way we thought, uh, we can look at it again and understand the connections and the links that we may have missed. So in this career, in this degree, um, there were two subjects that really caught my attention. So one of them was uh, the topic of geospatial. So just figuring out where things are. And I think, again, this took on probably from my childhood when you know we traveled to all these places and went to all these different locations. And the understanding of where things were and how that impacted you know, what happened in that environment, the local, the regional, the wider environment, that was huge. And that was the early days of geospatial software. So for if there are, there's anyone in the audience that does geospatial, um, one of the largest software uh, providers in the world right now, Esri, was on their second version. They're now, I think, on the 11th of the 12th of their software. So you get insights on how early days it was. But the second topic that I found fascinating um, was remote sensing. So, you know, getting information from things from afar. And that co covered all sorts of remote sensing, definitely satellite uh, uh, remote sensing, or what we call today Earth observation, but also, you know, sensors that you could put on airplanes, on boats, in the trees, everywhere. And does it, the availability of information that could be collected from afar and how that could be used to understand these very complex systems in a much deeper way. That's something that definitely caught my attention. And so, as you can see, actually these two here, um, which I have illustrated. So on the left-hand side, you have the remote sensing side of things. Um, and this is actually a graphic from the National Science Foundation in the US who um, I got to get funding from later on in life. And on the right-hand side, you have all these uh, geographic layers. So this, the science of the where, which puts all of these pieces of information together and let us understand that where things are is important. There are many things that are important, but where things are is important. And we need to build a fuller picture um, of the world that we're trying to understand and to simplify. And so that took me to my next career step. So I spent um, actually a little bit of time uh, working as a research assistant and I actually joined a development uh, NGO in Latin America because I was lucky enough to be exposed through my master's the, to the amazing nature and landscapes of the tropics. And I got a chance to go to Africa and I got a chance to go to Asia because I had a fantastic professor. And so when it came time to think about a PhD, I went, well, I haven't been to um, one of the other continents, so let's try America. 
And so I found myself um, applying for a few scholarships and getting one of them, and then being able to choose uh, between different professors. And I ended up going with a professor in the US, um, but with a research site in Panama in Latin America. So that uh, image that you see there is actually where the research site that I worked at for my thesis is, and that is actually the Panama Canal. Um, so here's where a few of the things that had started to emerge previously and that I was so passionate about continued in, in my career and the way that I chose to do things. So I went with a topic that would keep me close to nature because again, that was very close to my heart. I've always loved being in nature and it just makes me happy. And so that those were the sites where I would do my field work. Um, so you can see there just like the amazing tropical forest that you can see. But I carried forward and I actually put a great emphasis on the two knowledge areas that I have found in my earlier studies. So geographic location and earth observation from satellites were a big part of what I did for my PhD. And this was a whole other adventure. Um, it ended up, uh, you know, bringing a lot of challenges and definitely a lot of thinking on my side and some fantastic opportunities that I would never have thought of. So in the process of creating um, a topic that was unique, that was interesting, that would bring some value to humanity um, and that I would develop, I ended up landing in trying to understand human impacts on tropical forests and how can we detect and measure those impacts and how long um, do they stay in those ecosystems after we've, we've been there. And so it turned out that using all these technologies, using remote sensing, um, both actually from air using laser, using radar and using um, satellite images in the most conventional sense, uh, was it, it gave me power to look at this at a much wider scale than had ever been done before. So traditionally these studies are done in very small plots where people go through the field and measure every tree and have these instruments and they do these over very, very small areas. So for those of you who are familiar with um, uh, area units, uh, the, the biggest areas that get ever measured in this way are about 50 hectares, but very often one hectare or 10 hectares. So really, really small pieces of land. And by using these technologies, I could look at, you know, tens and hundreds of square kilometers of forest and just have a much wider sense of how these things were happening. But because this was very new, which is what a PhD is supposed to do, it meant that I got to have collaborations with NASA, um, with uh, the US, um, US Geographical Survey, with big technology companies in the US, because that's where I was um, doing my PhD, that had amazing instruments to collect tons of information. And so it was, it was a really big experience in A, uh, applying my earlier concept as an engineer, if there is an issue, it's your job to solve it. No excuses, you just have to figure out a way. So trying many ways of figuring this out. But just actually identifying by having these 
drive and this persistence, identifying exciting collaboration opportunities and bringing um, extremely knowledgeable people on board from these great organizations to work because they would also get to develop an interesting piece of research or a new discovery. And so um, that's, that was a, a great experience. And um, we're now going to, uh, coming back to the UK where I actually did my, uh, my master's thesis in University of Aberdeen. So as I was developing my PhD, um, you know, PhDs in the US are very long. And I decided towards the end, I should be working at the same time because otherwise I would go crazy writing my thesis and writing all these um, uh, articles for scientific journals, which is quite, <laughs> is quite a, a demanding task from a mental point of view. So I actually started working for a, a very small company in, in Panama, where I was at the time, that would um, deliver information to all sorts of organizations, including, for instance, some, some government ministries at using these types of technologies. So because I knew the technologies very well and I had studied them very deeply, it was a pretty straightforward um, job for me to do from a technology point of view. It definitely brought a, a, a completely different dimension, which is tailoring your technology approach to the question or the problem but, that people are trying to solve. But so in this process, I, you know, I was going to an event to present one of my papers at a conference in Australia, and I came across someone from a very small company also in the UK that uh, was dealing with monitoring of the earth for uh, helping countries with disaster response. And these really caught my interest. And um, as serendipity would have it, there was a job opening that came up in this company and I applied um, and it, um, uh, I had to meet up with the CEO and the head of commercial on Christmas Eve while I was coming to visit my family in Europe because I was across the ocean and they ended up offering me a job, uh, which meant just as I was trying to complete my thesis and defend it in the US, I actually took a job here in the UK, working for um, a company that, that coordinated the disaster monitoring constellation of satellites, which you can see there on the right. Um, and this opportunity uh, opened up so many other activities for me in my space career that again I could have never thought of because sure I was using satellites and I was you know I was pretty good at it but I was using all sorts of other technologies so at no point had I said you know my career is going to be all about satellites this is it for me um, but I I took the jump I took the job and actually the picture so I came to Gifford sorry um, for that job. And the picture that you can see there in the middle, I think is my second week of work. And it was actually the annual event where we brought together all of the country members of the disaster monitoring constellation because each of the satellites was managed and owned by a different country and they worked in collaboration and then all sorts of other partners. So already, you know, a couple of weeks into the job, 
I'm, you know, surrounded by people from space agencies, from all over, from scientific agencies using this satellite data. And it was a fantastic immersion, but it also opened up a whole other area that I could have never anticipated. And so my highlight of this period, uh, and again, kind of happened fortuitously just by staying open, was supporting the UK Space Agency in this fantastic initiative that is called the International Charter Space and Major Disasters. So this is a collaboration across uh, space agencies. It started very small with three, four space agencies um, about 20 years ago. Uh, so it was Canada, uh, France, I think the European Space Agency, and maybe one more as, at the very, very start. Um, to, with the intention to share satellite data in support of disaster response for countries all across the world. And uh, sure enough, it was a big effort and it took a lot of, um, you know, a lot of time and a lot of countries joining to get it to where it's today, where I think it's circa, uh, again, it's between 15 and 20 space agencies that are members today, but they really will uh, provide data to countries anywhere um, through directly if, if they become users of the charter or through other organizations such as the UN if the countries don't feel that they have the capacity. So this um, is definitely has been like probably the best highlight of my career on the one hand, because you're, you know that the work that you do is directly helping people in a, in a complex situation. So if you are up for 24 hours waiting for the images to come, to send them across, to talk to the person in the country, to get them some maps so that they can prioritize the response, you know that that has a very direct impact on people's lives. But also because of the community of space agencies. So I have to say the crowd of people that work in these initiatives from all those space agencies, they are extremely giving. They will go out of their way to help and there are, despite of the countries, uh, obviously not agreeing in political issues in many other dimensions, when it came to the charter, there are no politics, there is nothing, there is the very clear mandate and, and driver to help people. And so um, this was a fantastic time for me. So there you, you can actually see um, the 15th, um, year anniversary celebrations from the creation of the charter, which I was happy um, to, I was just lucky enough to be part of and were in the US standing in front of their facilities with all the other uh, delegations um, and just getting together to figure out how to make this initiative even better. So I am just about to wrap up because um, I really want to interact with you and hopefully to get questions and to help uh, with other things. But just to say that from that first job in here in the UK, in Guildford, Surrey, I've actually been lucky enough to have, you know, to work at other places such as Satellite Applications Catapult, um, such as SEN, which is a, a startup aiming to deliver video from satellites. And I'm actually now collaborating with a couple of 
colleagues um, who have just founded their their new company called Impact Space. And so um, just to say that this is a fun journey um, that you may have noticed for those of you who are uh, very observant that I had little red dots all along the presentation. And I'll sort of quote um, Steve Jobs here, but looking back, it's easy to put the dots together and to make sense of the decisions that I made in life. But when you're living it at the moment, you don't necessarily know when you make those choices where they will take you. And for me, the key learnings have been stay open, stay curious, and if an opportunity comes up, and it seems really exciting, no matter how impossible or unfeasible it looks, go for it because you will not regret it. So with that, I'm wrapping, but I wanted to leave you with a space image for the Q&A um, so that we have a lovely background. Awesome, thank you so much, Elena. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless, like it's, you've, described um, such a fascinating journey and such a fascinating career from how you went like you just love nature and then it took you through took you to Panama and then it, you discovered how how the space industry can play such a role in, um, in in nature and obviously hundreds of different more applications um, but honestly so fascinating and thank you so much for such an amazing talk um, there's actually a question coming coming in already from Sophie Hannon. Thank you, Sophie, for your question. Um, and Sophie's asking, would you say your wider geographical knowledge has given you a different outtake on the space industry? Yes, actually, I would say that has been extremely helpful because um, it, the space, so the space sector um, is quite wide, but definitely the space industry, so the commercial side of things, actually is very different across regions and continents. So, um, so having been able to experience definitely the US side, the European side, and through the international collaborations, actually, um, some of the other very strong countries, definitely in Asia, um, India, China, Japan, but very emerging, you know, a lot of emerging countries there are very significant differences. And so it, that has been quite helpful to kind of get the whole uh, broad scope. Yeah, I think I, I, I was just thinking about that. You've mentioned you've, you love traveling and because of that traveling, you've been able to um, meet so many different people, especially those who are kind of high up in different space agencies. How would you, how would you describe your experience with the likes of the different space agencies you worked it through the um, through the um, natural disaster response. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, this is a combination of actually how the space agencies are structured, which again, this the way that they're structured actually can quite significantly differ across countries in the mandate and the remit that they take. Um, so, for instance, some of the very well-known space agencies, such as NASA, you know, they have a big, big operational capacity on top of the uh, research, etc. Um, and that is definitely the case for, for many others, whereas in some cases, definitely with the newer or smaller space agencies, 
they focus much more on a niche or a particular area rather than covering the broad full spectrum of what you can do with satellites, which is a yeah. lot. Um, yeah. but, the, but also the way that people work, right? And this, this is where the cultural aspect uh, yeah. makes a huge difference. So for instance, some countries have traditionally in their societies, very hierarchical structures. And these structures percolate to every aspect of their lives, including space agencies. Mm -hmm. And so having an understanding of how these structures work, which influence their processes, and being able to work effectively with them versus, for instance, other countries where no matter what level you're at, people just talk to each other. So you can have the most junior person and the CEO of the organization talking in the same place. It's a very different dynamic. And again, kind of understanding those differences, even from, you know, even just for an operational activity such as the charter, well, you need to organize together and bring all this information together makes a big difference in how you communicate with people, what you expect, how they set up to do these things. Yeah, awesome. I think uh, the Bali Lodia has just said that and she really, really enjoyed your talk and she says thank you. So I'm really glad you enjoyed that, Nepali. Um, so we were talking, we just met, you just mentioned the uh, disaster response charter. Um, and I think you're doing an absolutely amazing job with using um, satellite technology to help essentially effectively save lives. But um, you said that it's, it's quite a high pressure situation because you're kind of waiting because satellites, <laughs> of course, so they don't always comply, do they? Um, and you can't, you just have to wait. You're just staring at a screen for data to appear. So like, how, how have you found that um, the balance between like the high pressure of you've, you've got people waiting to save people's lives. Mm -hmm. And on, on the other hand, you're just technology, which you're relying on. How have you found yeah. that? So this is interesting, right? Because of course, as a person, you definitely want to be, uh, you, you know what they're going through. You want to be supporting them. Yeah. the best that you possibly can. And this is actually what the majority of these organizations spend their time. So when you have these meetings with all those people from the space agencies, a big part of the discussion is, well, we know that this is useful, but we know that we could do better. You know, if you could get the information faster, quicker, and more effectively, obviously it could have a big impact on people. And how do you solve that problem? That is a big part of it. And so um, I can tell you, obviously, on the personal side, so one, one side of things, ideally, if you have the chance is, if you know the people that you're going to support, and normally you distribute the work between the different country members, um, mm -hmm. you try and get to know them in advance, create expectations, tell them, look, if you, when you have a disaster, this is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to support you. This is how long the information could take. But uh, you know we're still human. When you're waiting for the data and you want it to be there faster, <laughs> it doesn't make the wait um, easier. But yeah. uh, but there is always that understanding. But I also have to say, I mean, the world of satellites and just the capability that is available is growing at a speed that is completely unprecedented. There are new companies, new constellations. Even the um, existing agencies are launching new capabilities every year. So the, the velocity at which data is emerging is huge. There is still the factor though, 
with with this type of situation that data is often not enough. It has to be data that you can take and transform into information that helps them make a decision because in the disaster response scenario, you're looking at very short time frames. So there isn't enough time to go, oh, a new data source I haven't used before. How would I get to know which areas are flooded and where to send the rescue teams? That's not the moment to do that. So there is a lot of, uh, you know, there is a certain lag between new data sources becoming available and then going through the processes and through the standards that are required to use them in an initiative like this. Yeah, so, so at, at the end of the data has to make sense before we've even got the data. Uh, yes, yeah. Well, in the main, uh, in, in most countries, you're, I mean, some countries are super well prepared and they will have teams of analysts that, get, that can handle any type of satellite data. But in many situations, you have civil protection agencies who know how to manage disasters if they're given the right information, but they're not experts in these. So they need to be given the information in a way that they can just trust it and act on it. And they don't have to kind of figure out what yeah. it means. That's great. Uh, oh, there's another question coming in from Lucy Curtis. Thanks for your question. Um, and she's asking you that, could you pinpoint any particular key transferable skill needed to pursue a career in the space industry? So, uh, sure, but do you mean transferable from another field or just from my from my background can we figure it out? I, think, I think she's um from she's asking from your kind of experiences ah. if there's one that's in the space industry but it could also be uh, broadly used right okay sure uh yes so something that i've uh that i've learned in the space industry so i would say the space industry is a rather international sector, right? So no matter whether you're here in the UK or not, people, the people that will use the information that you generate tend to be all over the world. And yeah. equally, the data sources that you use will come from all over the world. Um, so learning again, how different people work, what to expect, how to have effective interactions with them um, is, is huge. And I think that can go across so many other areas because we are ever a more global society. I mean, if now you can run a, a business on the internet in the digital economy where your yeah. customers will be all over. So having these understandings really gives you a global view which can transfer across many areas. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned like having the understanding of people, but how does someone who's not kind of interacted with different types of people learn that skill? Yes, so I would say if you can, uh, start working with someone who has and just kind of observe them and watch them and be there with them, but be mm -hmm. humble. Also say, you know, I'm very new at these. Uh, I'm very interested in working with you. I apologize if I do something that, you know, that doesn't agree, please be patient with me. Mm -hmm. people, I yeah. mean, again, people who work in an international context, they will understand, right? If you, if you come at it from a, from a point of view of, you know, I'm coming from this perspective, I'm willing to be open and to learn. And, um, and then, then people will, will receive you. But yes, if you can, if you can definitely uh, kind of watch how someone does it that has been doing it for a long time, that's mm -hmm. very helpful. 
Awesome, no, thank you. I hope that answers your question, Lucy. Uh, we've got another interesting question coming in from our YouTube channel. Um, and there's a question saying, has your, has your journey acted as an advantage in getting teams to work differently? Or equally, were there, equally were there barriers you felt you overcame or still would like to overcome for future people to, um, who are coming in, who are thinking about coming into the industry? Sure. So I would say yes, having these actually these different and diverse background has been a massive advantage, especially in the roles I've the later roles, but actually all you know, where you have to interface both with the people who are experts in the technology and so being able to have a level of understanding of the technology, you know, giving them the confidence that while you may not know their technology 200%, you have yeah. a background that allows you to get it in that way has been very useful. And at the same time though, interfacing and communicating with the people who use the outputs of the technology, but definitely are not interested in being technology experts to make it meaningful to them, to actually really understand and take their point of view often. Um, having, having had those experiences from before, where I've been both, I've been the technology expert and the user of the technology, um, really, really was an advantage in working with teams uh, in, in the space sector. Uh, because yeah, it, then you could, you could see it from the two sides. And I would say there are definitely still challenges to overcome. And one that we're moving towards quite quickly as a sector but that we still definitely have not nailed down is that this has traditionally been a sector dominated by those who know technology very well and have the amazing capability to create these fantastic scientific grade products and information and systems, but yeah. who are often not very close to the problems that these systems are trying to solve. And so, kind of be having a more joint thinking from the two sides from yeah. the start rather than kind of going you know developing all of this amazing technology and then going ah and how do we make this useful for the people later which has you know in the past been been the way that things were done um yeah. you know that's a that's a transition that we're going through but there's still quite a, a ways to go mm -hmm. no thank you so much i hope that answers your question on youtube um you were speaking about you were speaking about this earlier about how um, the different the response units in the um, in the in the disaster units um, they act with the different um, space data that comes in effectively to help them see where they need to go and um, save lives. But um, I I, I always ask this question to people who have done PhDs because um, in a PhD of course it's so it's so refined as what what you're studying. And it's so specific, like it's a specific application you're, you're really spending so much time on and going so much, going into so much detail with. Um, but if we now step back and think about the wide um, breadth of what satellites do for us, mm -hmm. how, where do you think, so if we step back from like what you've done in your PhD and see the wide application of what satellites are doing for us, where do you see that's going in terms of um, especially disaster response and how satellites can actually help us? Because I'm, I'm sure there's people in the audience who are probably wondering how, who are probably wondering how satellite data is helping 
disasters, whether it be, I mean, I'll, I'll, let, you I'll let you take on the question. Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I guess disaster response is probably one of the best examples that actually brings all of the satellite technologies together. So to start off with uh, the number of disasters that are caused by uh, hydrometeorological causes, so which means weather related things, is the one that's growing exponentially, right? So we have a pretty fixed number of earthquakes, of um, volcanoes, etc. That really hasn't changed uh, dramatically um, over uh, you know the last few decades. But the number of disasters that we have relating to weather, so droughts, cyclones, um, flooding. Flooding is actually the, the most uh, damaging disaster globally. That has been growing at an alarming rate in the sense that we have, you know, uh, where we used to have maybe a decade or so ago, uh, 50 major disasters per year, we now have 500. So it's in that order of difference uh, how quickly that's happening. And so for these types of disasters, a key piece of information which I've already indicated is weather. So yeah. weather satellites and accurate weather, real-time weather information, huge. And there have been really great initiatives recently. So the US, Europe, but, actually, but um, also some countries in, in Asia have actually launched much more advanced weather satellites that give information at very rapid intervals. In, in some cases, when they're um, monitoring for emergency response in the matter of minutes. And because the weather patterns are so complex and they're becoming ever uh, increasingly more complex, um, mm -hmm. and I think for those of us who live here in the UK, that's very good proof because you can look at the weather forecast and half the time it's not gonna be that to where you are. Um, yeah. But these type of advances are likely to make a huge difference. Now, don't get me wrong, that's the first part of the equation. You still need to then take all this amazing data and much more rich data and make sense of this complex dynamic world that we live in, which is like always you know, much more complicated than our simplified model. So that's the first part. The second yeah. part that is also key is location. So these are satellites that give us information about location or global positioning. So for disasters, and definitely now that the number of people with mobile devices that have uh, the ability to provide location is rapidly growing. So if our global population is circa, is, I think we're seven and a half billion, uh, getting close to eight. Um, the, if I get this number right, but I think the global of, um, the number of global devices is between three and five billion, which means a lot of us uh, have the ability to get location. And this is huge for disasters. And actually, depending on how um, a country sees disasters, they're actually pushing information out to people who they know to be in a location of risk. So for instance, in the US, if you're in a location that has been detected to be at high risk of flood, you will get a message on your mobile, no matter what provider you have, that says, you're in a in a uh, at flood of flood risk. Please evacuate. Right. So mm -hmm. this is also a huge part of how disaster response can be improved. And again, the capabilities are only growing in that in this area. And the part that maybe um, is uh, the closest to where I've worked is the satellites that take images. Right. So when you have a disaster and the disaster has occurred, 
you very often have a very poor understanding, especially if it's a large one, of what is the situation immediately after. So if it's a flood or if it's a landslide or if it's uh, like the Nepal earthquake that occurred a very vast area, are people trapped that you could rescue? You know, and if you rescue them in the first 24, 48 hours, that has a huge impact on their ability to survive versus if you take five days. Um, yeah. Are there communities at risk that could still, that are fine now, but could be, you know, in a progressive flood, for instance, where it's still raining, but could be at risk tomorrow. And so you need to evacuate them now. Having this information is huge. And depending on where you are in the world or how big the disaster is, you know, just the information that you get from the people there is not enough. It's not nearly enough to understand it. And this is where, um, you know, getting those images, getting the satellites to take images of the site that will allow an expert to interpret them and to provide meaningful information to say, well, it looks like this neighborhood is cut out. So, you know, they, if you actually have population information, there are a thousand people that live there. So this should be prioritized for the rescue teams to go and check out who, who is there, yeah. that type of thing. That is huge. And this is where the, again, the new capabilities emerging, just the number of satellites that are being launched every year can really help because here the timing is key. So getting the information quickly uh, anywhere, wherever this is happening, that makes a big difference. No, that's great. I think I think you're doing an amazing job. As, as someone who's worked on the technical side of things, and if you're working on this, this disaster response team, um, what apart from the obvious, like you have optical data, which you can see uh, through visible light, how could you like describe a scenario where you use a different type of data to help a certain situation? Because oh, I, I, yeah. I, oh, I have. Oh, that happens all the time. Of course. So, um, I mean, since we live in a cloudy country, hopefully this is quite relatable, but <laughs> a large part of the global population lives in very cloudy places. A mm -hmm. traditional optical satellite will take a beautiful picture on a cloud clear day, but if there is cloud, the cloud is in between you and the satellite. So it will take a lovely picture of the cloud, which means if you need information at the time the cloud is there, then you need to get this information some other way. And this is where we have, for instance, radar satellites. So it's a different part of the um, electromagnetic spectrum. And actually it's what we call an active satellite. So the satellite actually emits energy, sends energy down to earth all the way from the satellite. And then the energy gets down and bounces back and the satellite records what came back. And these this type of technology allows you to get information through cloud and through a certain level of rain. If it, if, if it is very dense rain, it can be a bit tricky. And mm -hmm. this is huge, hugely valuable for when you need information quickly over an area that's cloudy. And this can definitely be for an event like a flood, but sometimes also for, um, for instance, for maritime type things. So, you know, if there is a sheep that has lost or it's in a place where it shouldn't be and you need to retrieve this type of information. Again, this is very clear, right? Because the ship in the ocean will bounce very different information to the flat ocean surface. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, those are, those are clear examples. And actually I think the UK has had some really interesting case studies of actually tracking 
also vessels in the ocean that were suspected of doing illegal activity and then tracing them back when they tried to take port in the UK, again, using these, these types of technologies. Oh, great, uh, thank you so much. There's a question coming in from Luke um, and he's asking, what's the single most impactful project and what was the problem and kind of how did you come up with the solution? Huh, okay, so that's a, that is a, a tough uh, question to answer because um, in a lot of this work, uh, you know, the, it's an ongoing activity, right? So you don't yeah. get to see the end of the impact in the short term. So, yeah. So for instance, uh, I mean, I can give you an example where um, in the activity relating to the charter, one of the initiatives is actually training teams in other countries to understand the technology and to use it. And I was able to work with the um, Civil Protection Agency of Chile, um, who called themselves Disaster Central as a country because they get every single type of disaster that you can imagine. They get yeah. earthquakes, they get landslides, they get floods, they get fires. Um, so I was able to train them in the, in the capabilities of the charter and how to use it effectively. Because again, these, these are processes that need to re run fast and smooth. So if you're going to use it well, you kind of need to know how, how to do it. You can't kind of learn it on the go. Um, so that I thought was very useful and I could see they actually started to use the capability quite often soon after the training, which then translates in them having better disaster response. Um, and, and a project that has not concluded yet, but that I think will, will deliver great impact um, was actually under a program funded by the UK Space Agency called the International Partnership Program. And this was a collaboration with the three Pacific Island countries, um, which uh, so it are heavily impacted by sea level rise and the impacts of climate change. So actually you probably don't see it uh, depending on how your screen is displayed, but the map I have there, it's actually uh, representing a sea level rise globally um, in the last few decades. And the darker, so red colors are areas where sea level has disproportionately risen compared to other areas. And so if you can see sort of the Pacific uh, over here, you can see they've been, they've actually suffered from these disproportionately from other areas. So this was, this project was, and it's still ongoing to monitor um, the greatest risks related to climate change, but also to prepare plans um, to adapt to these to yeah. these risks. That's absolutely great. Uh, um, I hope that answers your question, Luke. And I think we have got through everyone's questions. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for sharing um, so many insights into your career and teaching us something new about satellite technology and how it's helping people um, save lives. My um, pleasure. I'm glad they, they were great questions, by the way, so I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Space Store podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Talks and be part of the Q&A every Thursday at 7pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one, two and three of the Space Talk and lots more. Like what you heard today? 
why not support us by visiting our website, spacetour.co, and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.